We would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Wirroni is created. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that the name Wirroni was taken from the Wadiwadi Nation without permission and we are striving to do better for future reconciliation. Hi everyone, my name is Annika and I'm the host of The Space Space, a radio show dedicated to all things astrophysics and astronomy. We'll be delving into things like astronomy news, exploring weird and wonderful celestial bodies, and taking a look at some of the most exciting advancements in astrophysics. So thanks for joining me on this journey through space, and it's the first time, and let's get started with some space news. Last weekend saw a triple meteor shower light up the southern skies with the southern delta acroids, the alpha capricornids, and the Pisces austronids. While the peak of these meteor showers has passed, it was on Saturday, you'll still be able to see a few in the next few nights. But first, what are meteors? Meteors come from leftover comet particles and bits from broken asteroids. When comets orbit the Earth, the dust they emit gradually spreads into a dusty trail around their orbits. Every year, the, sun, the Earth sorry, passes through these debris trails, which allows the bits to collide with our atmosphere, where they disintegrate to create fiery and colorful streaks in the sky. Let's have a look at some of these meteor showers. So, the southern delta acroids have fast-moving meteors at roughly 41 kilometers per second, and as the name suggests, it's most visible from the southern hemisphere. Astronomers are not quite sure where the southern delta acroids originate from, being one of the several meteor showers that seem linked to a singular parent object, such as a large comet that may have fell apart millions of years ago, leaving debris that the Earth passes through. This is what we see as meteors. So as it turns out, uh, Earth passes through this debris a few times a year as the debris has kind of spread out over time. There's talk of the southern delta acroids' volatileness, such as in 2006, where there was a sudden outburst leading to around 60 meteors per hour being reported by observers, though under normal conditions we can expect about 20 meteors per hour. Most of the meteors from our triple meteor shower will be from the southern delta acroids, and you'll know it's an acroid if it appears to originate from the constellation of Aquarius. Great tip for stargazing or meteor shower observation is to download a star map app. There are plenty that tell you the names of stars you're pointing your phone at and allow you to locate certain celestial objects and find out more information about what exactly you're looking at. The app that I use is called Night Sky. I'd highly recommend. There's nothing like being outside in, uh, at night, someone pointing at a star and being like, hey, um, I wonder what that is. You should know. You're an astrophysics student, shouldn't you? And then me fumbling to go and reach for my phone uh, to check my app. Now, the Alpha Capricornids. This meteor shower originates from the comet 169P NEAT, created 3,500 to 5,000 years ago when half the comet, or what we call a parent body, disintegrated. This meteor shower has a much lower frequency of about five meteors per hour, which infrequent but quite bright. It's predicted that Earth will not coincide with the majority of the disintegrated comet until the 24th century, where the Alpha Capricornids are set to become a major annual storm, stronger than any other current annual storm. Though we probably won't get to see this unless you come up with a way to live until 2300, which in this case, let me know, I'm very curious. This meteor shower originates from the Capricorn constellation, specifically from a point near Alpha Capricorni, and has a velocity of roughly 23 kilometers per second, 
but half as fast as the southern delta acrids. Finally, Pisces Ostrodents. The Pisces Ostrodents are a faint meteor shower that radiate from an area west of the brightest star, Formahot, in the constellation of Pisces Ostrodents, also known as the Southern Fish. If you're expecting quite spe- something quite spectacular, you'll be severely disappointed with what you get. Most you can probably get is about 10. The hourly rate is about 5 kilometers per hour. But even then, they're quite faint, and often meteors from the southern delta acrids are credited as being from Pisces Ostrodens, when they're not. These meteors travel relatively fast, with a velocity of around 44 kilometers per second, comparable to the southern delta acrids, which probably isn't helping in terms of getting the two showers confused. Compared to other meteor showers, such as the Geminides meteor shower in December, which produces a whopping 120 meteors per hour, these three meteor showers are pretty measly. But what's so spectacular is that their peaks, i.e. when we expect to encounter the most meteors, they fall within a few days of each other, with the southern delta acrids and the Pisces Austrians peaking on the 28th and the 29th of July, and the Alpha Capricornids peaking on the 30th or 31st of July which is why this is such an exciting event. Of course, again, the peaks are are over, um, seeing as it's August, but meteor showers often last days or even weeks. So if a night looks particularly clear, then rug up and have a gaze at the sky. I believe that most of them will be uh, continue until mid-August, but honestly, get outside. The night sky is wonderful. Now... On to another very exciting bit of astronomy news, the James Webb Telescope, which I'm sure you've already seen and heard about from all sorts of different places. I want to first acknowledge that James Webb, the man the telescope is named after, was part of the Lavender Scale, a homophobic scheme that arose from the belief that queer people were more susceptible to influence from spies back in the Cold War, which granted employers the ability to flat fire employees simply because they may be queer and hence some sort of threat to national security which is not true, obviously. Uh, James Webb was a significant part of the Lavender Scare at NASA, so um, for that reason, I'll be referring to the telescope as the JWST from now on. Now, astrophysicists and space enthusiasts alike have been excited about the JWST for ages, but what exactly makes it so special? Aside from the gorgeous pictures, of course, one huge thing about JWST is that it allows us to see the earliest galaxies ever observed, but what do I mean by early? To get into this, we're going to need some background, so bear with me. Light travels at finite speeds. Granted, still extremely fast, but this is somewhat insignificant when it comes to distances between galaxies. While it only takes eight minutes for photons, i.e. light from the surface of the sun, to reach Earth, it can take millions and even billions of years for light from distant galaxies to reach Earth. Meaning if we looked at a galaxy one light year away, i.e. the distance between the galaxy, uh, oh, sorry, the distance between the galaxy and us is whatever distance is traversed by a photon in one year. The light we'd actually be seeing is what the galaxy looked like a year ago, which sort of enables us to look back in time. This proves really useful for studying the origins of the universe, one of the many big questions astronomy has to offer, since we can pretty much just look directly into the past and see what happened. So when I say early, I mean the most distant galaxies, the ones created in the earliest stages of the universe and whose light has had to traverse the farthest to get here on Earth. 
the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. And the oldest observed galaxy I could find was roughly 13.4 to 13.5 billion years old, found by the Hubble Space Telescope. That's debatable, and there are some messy things involving redshift since the universe is expanding at a constantly growing rate. So technically, um, you could say that the galaxy is 32 billion light years away, which doesn't make sense given the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years, but we won't get into that. Speaking of Hubble, how does JWST actually compare to Hubble? Firstly, JWST measures light in the infrared, whereas Hubble measures light in optical and UV wavelengths. Why are infrared observations important to astronomy, though? Stars and planets are just forming, lie hidden behind cocoons of dust that absorb visible light. The same is true for the very center of our galaxy. However, infrared light emitted by these regions can penetrate this dusty shroud and reveal what is inside, providing valuable information about the formation of stars and planets and the early development of galaxies. As a result, we're expecting that JWST will allow us to observe some of the earliest galaxies and other early celestial bodies ever discovered, as mentioned previously. Obviously, the bigger your telescope, the more light can get in and the more data you get per observation. JWST's primary mirror is about 6.5 meters in diameter, whereas Hubble's is about 2.4 meters, giving the JWST a 6.25 times bigger surface area for collecting light. Uh, JWST also has a wider field of view, able to cover about 15 times the area Hubble can. In terms of orbit, the Hubble Space Telescope orbits around the Earth at an altitude of around 570 kilometers above Earth. JWST doesn't even orbit the Earth and is a whopping 1.5 million kilometers away at what's called the Earth-Sun L2 Lagrange point. Its distance from Earth does mean that it's not serviceable the way that Hubble is, though, and we've already had an instance of a micrometeorite hitting JWST. Luckily, the data is correctable, and this was accounted for when JWST was built, the idea that we'd be able to correct things here on Earth, and knowing that that telescope is far gone. JWST is also quite sensitive to heat, um, obviously, because it's an infrared telescope. It has a massive sun shield about the size of a tennis court that blocks light from sun, earth, and the moon. Even though the moon doesn't emit light technically, it still reflects light from the sun. And that's quite problematic for a telescope looking for very, very faint infrared signals from all over the universe. Ultimately, Hubble is still very useful. Given it measures wavelengths in a completely different range to JWST, the optical and UV wavelengths, though it can even measure a tiny bit of the infrared spectrum, which is not a lot. JWST simply unlocks more observational potential. The official beginnings of Webb's general science operations was marked by five full-color scientific Im images released on July the 12th, the Carina Nebula, a planet called WASP-96b, the Southern Ring Nebula, Stefan's Quintet, and a galaxy called SMACS-0723. Very creative names. The Carina Nebula is one of the largest and most brightest uh, nebulae in the sky, located approximately 7,600 light years away in the southern constellation Carina. Nebulae are stellar nurseries where stars form, full of gas and dust which clumps together under gravity to form early stars known as protostars. Observing this nebula is 
really cool because it means that um, astrophysicists are able to study how stars form. Um, again, with JWST um, aiming to look at the development of early celestial bodies, such as stars, of course, planets and galaxies. The Carina Nebula is also home to many massive stars, several larger, times larger than the Sun. WASP-96b is a giant planet outside our solar system, composed mainly of gas. The planet, located nearly 1,150 light years away from Earth, orbits its, sun every, uh, orbits its star every 3.4 days. It has a mass about half that of Jupiter, and its discovery was announced in 2014. The Southern Ring, or the Eight Burst Nebula, is a planetary nebula. Planetary nebulas are an expanding cloud of gas surrounding a dying star. It's nearly half a light year in diameter and is located approximately 2,000 light years away from Earth. About 290 million light years away, Stefan's Quintet is located in the constellation Pegasus. It's notable for being the first compact galaxy group ever discovered in 1787. Four of the five galaxies within the quintet are locked in a cosmic dance of repeated close encounters, which is just a fancy way of saying that the gravitational pull influences each other. We've recently been quite interested in galaxy clusters, particularly with, I know, uh, it's possible you may have heard of Milkyometer, which is the lovely name that scientists have given to uh, the Milky Way and Andromeda when they eventually merge together. This, uh, since galaxies have um, black holes in their center, uh, when two galaxies merge, then mass is thrown everywhere. Galaxies are a delicate balance. Um, if they're spinning just slightly too fast, then we'd expect that their mass would be thrown outwards into the rest of the universe and the galaxy would be what we consider extinct or dead. So studying things like Stefan's Quintet, which is quite interesting because there's five galaxies, four of which actually influence each other. Um, it's very exciting for, uh, for scientists at the moment. Finally, SMACS0723 is a massive foreground galaxy cluster which magnifies and, uh, and distorts the lights of objects behind it. If you're familiar with the JWST uh, images, that's the one that has all of the galaxies on it and kind of looks like someone has uh, stretched the image a little bit in the middle. This permits a deep field view into both the extremely distant and intrinsically faint galaxy populations. If you look closely at SMACS0723 image, you'll notice some of the galaxies are a little misshapen. This is due to a phenomena called gravitational lensing. Gravitational lensing occurs when massive objects such as galaxy clusters have such a strong gravitational pull that they literally pull the fabric of space. Sort of like if you placed a heavy ball in a piece of fabric and stretched it over a frame. The fabric bends, and if the fabric had a print on it, then that print would be distorted accordingly. This in turn magnifies distant light, which not, would not have been able to be observed otherwise, allowing researchers to study the details of some of the earliest galaxies ever discovered. It's sort of like a giant magnifying glass, distorting our vision, but allowing us to see things smaller than what we would have been able to see without it. These are just a tiny snippet of the reasons why astronomers are so excited about JWST. And even if you knew absolutely nothing about astronomy or space in general, at least you can admit that these photos are gorgeous. 
I believe you can download the high-resolution images of the NASA website if you're looking for a new laptop wallpaper. Now, on to something a bit more fun, space junk falling to Earth. A few days ago, a 23-ton robot re-entered Earth's atmosphere, burning up and landing in the Sulu Sea, a body of water between the island of Borneo and the Philippines. This happens all the time, space junk falling back to Earth, but... What was so concerning was the fact that China didn't provide any information about the trajectory of the rocket, called Long March 5B. This led to, led to days of tracking, or anxiously hoping that the rocket wouldn't hit a populated area, which luckily it didn't. The rocket launched last Sunday, carrying into orbit a lo laboratory module that was added to China's space station, Changong. Usually, the large booster stages of rockets immediately drop back to Earth after they are jettisoned. But the 23-ton core stage of the Long March 5B accompanied the space station segment all the way into orbit. Because of friction caused by the rocket rubbing against air at the top of the atmosphere, it soon began losing altitude, making what is called uncontrolled re-entry back to Earth. This is just a fancy term for, uh-oh, it's falling out of the sky, essentially. In recent days, Space Watchers had projected uh, potential re-entries over much of the planet. Within the last day, the prediction had become more precise, but even then, forecasters were unsure whether it would come down over the Indian Ocean, off Mexico, or in the Atlantic. People in Sarawak, a province of Malaysia on the island of Borneo, reported sightings of the rocket debris on social media, with many believing that pyrotechnics at first to be a meteor shower or a comet. This isn't the first run in Long March 5B has had with the general population. In 2020, it lofted a reusable astronaut capsule with no crew on board to orbit. A booster fell on villages in Ivory Coast in Western Africa, causing some property damage, but no injuries. Can only imagine the poor people living in the Ivory Coast, going about their everyday lives and having their property suddenly damaged by a rocket that came literally out of nowhere. And I'd be pretty mad. This is why space law is important. Yes, it's a thing, and there are actual space lawyers. The whole domain of space is relatively new, and there are a lot of things to argue about, hence why we have space law. This includes things like who's responsible when launching something from a particular country, what to do if an astronaut murders another astronaut in space, and of course, what to do when things go wrong and who's responsible. At the beginning of this year, I did a space industry program run by AYAA, which is the Australian Youth Aerospace Association. Uh, their program's aimed at tertiary students and young professionals interested in a career in the space industry from all disciplines, not just astrophysics or aeronautical engineering. I'd highly recommend it for anybody who's interested in a career in the space industry, whether you are an astrophysics student, um, a science communication student, an economics student, or law student. It's a really interesting look at the space industry from a multidisciplinary view, and I really enjoyed it. We talked a lot about space law, and something I found interesting was the laws around launching satellites. A bit different to rockets, but still relevant. Basically, satellite companies hire out launch pads owned by launching companies to launch the satellites. A huge amount of insurance is involved, and if a satellite ends up failing to launch, the satellite company can claim insurance, which is kind of weird because you'd think that uh, a faulty satellite would be the satellite company's fault. In Australia, you can claim up to $100 million in insurance, 
but if you're an Australian satellite company launching overseas, you can't claim anything. There's also a bunch of rules about space outlined in what's called the Outer Space Treaty, written in 1967. It states that space is free to explore and use, no one can claim sovereignty, so no buying land on the moon, uh, no nuclear weapons or mass destruction, that states have to claim responsibility for national activities in outer space, and that there's international liability for damage caused by space objects. There's also some other agreements and conventions, such as the 1968 Rescue Agreement, which relates to rescuing astronauts in space. The 1972 Liability Convention, covering liability for everything in space. The 1975 Registration Convention, which ensures everything in space is properly registered. And a specific moon agreement, written in 1979. Since space law is so new, it hasn't really been fleshed out properly, and there are still holes in it. Insurance is messy, and it requires both launch and satellite companies to sign cross waivers, and a bunch of permits need to be applied for and granted in order to launch anything into space. Consider also that anything launched into space needs to bypass airspace first, which is defined as anything up to 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, and that has a whole other set of rules associated with it. It's rather interesting, the cross-disciplinary nature of space. It's something I didn't realize until I did this program, where I was surrounded by engineering and astrophysics students, and law and economics and art students. Even KPMG, one of the big four accounting organizations, has a space department. In fact, they sponsored our team. Um, and with space, travel, and exploration becoming more and more common, and hopefully more accessible, we need some laws. We did end up talking about the economic side of the space industry once in one of the talks that was presented to us doing a program. But if I'm being honest, it went straight over my head. Sorry to any of the business or economic students listening, but I have no idea what a venture capital is. And there were just a lot of words and graphs and a lot of labels. Though I can understand the importance of um, economics and business and space travel. It's a huge industry, especially with so many um, billionaires taking things into space. Again, this is why space law is so, is, is so important because it can easily get out of hand very quickly if we don't have proper laws. And there are many loopholes and um, things that are not quite clear yet despite us first launching things. And I think it was uh, Russia launched in the 1960s before the moon, uh, before the moon landing. It was 1969. Anyway, short podcast today because that's all I have prepared. But um, thank you so much for tuning in to The Space Space. My name is Annika. You can find me rushing around campus late to my next class or furiously finishing an assignment. We'll try some other things in other weeks, um, looking at having one of my friends on, um, maybe answering some questions, maybe talking some more about some of the weirder things that you'll find um, up there in space. But again, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.